Please be advised that this podcast episode includes the topic of sexual assault. You'll find the timestamp in the show notes. This content may be triggering for some and inappropriate for children. Feel free to skip that section or this episode. Above all, take care of yourself. How can I use my time? Because it is the only thing that I cannot get back. I cannot make time. So finding the best way to spend that is actually an active adventure for me right now. Hello, my name is Gabriella Dennery, co-host of Doc Working, the Whole Physician podcast. And today we're going to talk about a topic that is near and dear to many physicians' hearts. And I'm so happy to bring to the show Dr. Lisa Johnson-Pratt, who I have to say, and I'm sorry to embarrass you, Lisa, you have to be the master of the pivot. And so we're going to talk about that today. Welcome to the Doc Working, the Whole Physician podcast. It's really my pleasure to be here, Gabriella, to talk with you. Excellent. So I'm going to ask you a little bit to start off. What is your origin story in medicine? What made you decide to become a doctor? Well, it's a great question. I actually didn't start out most of my youth wanting to be a doctor. I wanted to be a lawyer and a Supreme Court justice. (laughs) But my mom, I think, had some other ideas. (laughs) I had a lot of medically oriented people in my family. And so it seemed like a logical path. But I think more importantly, I was just kind of curious. I liked people. I liked people getting better. I liked the idea of helping people, which is kind of a traditional thing. But also there's just this intellectual curiosity about the science of it all. You know, as I started exploring more and going through my courses in undergrad, that's what really piqued my interest more than anything else, just intellectual curiosity. So fast forward a little bit, you get to med school (laughs) and Howard University. So this is where we met. Back in the day, you did an internal medicine residency. Yeah. And you had mentioned that you were not going into clinical practice. That's so right. I have to say, I was shocked in that moment. And you mentioned pharmacology or the pharmaceutical industry. And I said, yeah. well, how did that happen? That was serendipitous. So that's what's so amazing about life. You know, like you live long enough and you kind of look back and you see like the grand weaver weaving because I was literally at a nurse's station one night, I was admitting a patient and Robert Taylor, who was our head of pharmacology was also, he's an MD PhD, right? And he sat down beside me and we were actually admitting the patient together. And he was like, so what are you going to be doing? I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to be doing. I was like, you know, I'm just not finding anything that's really got me going right now. You know, maybe I'll just do clinical practice for a couple of years and then do a fellowship after that, I'll figure it out. You know, I thought maybe I will go to law school. Like I was really clueless. And he was like, well, question, would you be interested in becoming our first fellow for a joint fellowship with Glaxo, which is a pharmaceutical company that is a combination of clinical pharmacology and pharmaceutical medicine? Well, I was literally like, sign me up. And, you know, it was just like, opened my eyes to this world that was out there. And I basically decided that this was probably a great combination of the many different things that I wanted in my life, you know, that I hadn't found yet. It was the opportunity to have a different application of medicine. So not just, you know, treating 
at that time in an internal medicine clinic as a resident hypertension and diabetes. It was an opportunity to go broader than that and to also marry some of these skills or interests that I had in business and other things. So yeah, so that was the pivot. So I mean, what I'm hearing you say is that it kind of combined for you at that time all the other things that you really wanted to pursue or that you loved that you were interested in beyond just kind of clinical medicine. And you saw yourself in different roles from a very early stage. And so how would you, in that case, then define pivoting, knowing what you know now? I think that pivoting is, first of all, being really open to your capacity to change and being very in tune with yourself and where you are at that point. I think a lot of times it's easy to stay the course because it's familiar and comfortable, but you're not comfortable. So then you're kind of miserable. (laughs) And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be miserable. So I define it as recognizing those two things and then taking action. Was there any kind of internal pressure or external pressure to say, well, maybe I should just follow the path that everybody else follows? Oh, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. So back to my lovely mother. <laughs> the first person I called and told was my mom. She was like, what? Moms are great, I tell you. <laughs> like, you know, like, what? Are you crazy? And I was like, no, 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 I'm not crazy. Now she's like, yes, you know, you should be chairman of the board. <laughs> so, but before then, you know, it was kind of like, what? You know, because there's the pressure to conform in general is very high in our society. The risks are high, especially if you paid a lot of money for your education. My goodness, how much time did we spend to become a doctor, you know, undergrad, medical school, residency, and to jump into an unknown spot, you're definitely going to get some folks or even yourself like going, am I making the right decision? And I think that's normal and that's okay. That's why it's so important to understand the impetus for the change and then to really kind of think about what could potentially come out of it? If you could sum up in one or two key words or even a phrase, what was that impetus for you? I would say that I am someone who likes to wake up and do something different almost every single day. It's curiosity and it's maybe ADHD. Like, I don't know. I'm serious. My kids are saying, I think you have ADHD now. (laughs) But I think that I had this vision for my life that was really expansive. So that's way more than a couple of words, but it's like vision, it's curiosity, and it's a desire for novelty. Yeah, a desire for novelty. And so you're talking about not wanting to stagnate, but wanting to grow. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And One of the things I'm telling my kids all the time, and, you know, there's a lot of books being written on this and articles being written on this, that we have no idea what the world's going to look like in our future. And that future can be as short as, you know, a year. I mean, I was visiting my sister in December of 2019. Daddy, no, I wouldn't see her again for 18 months. Like, it's crazy, right? So we don't know. The speed of technological change is happening really rapidly. The ability to have mobility is accelerating. And I think that the idea that we're going to have one career in our lifetime is probably unrealistic. I'll give you two very clear examples. So I was at this meeting that was hosted by Stanford and they had this woman who does like medical information. And she made this comment 
that the medical information is doubling about once every 90 days. The funniest example I have is I sit in this group with women who are in different industries. And one of my colleagues said, yeah, I knew things had changed when my friend called me up from her bank and said, we are just hiring a chief TikTok officer. And, you know, TikTok has been around for like 24 months. And so now people are trying to figure out how to use this new TikTok platforms. And we have doctors on TikTok and we have lots of people on TikTok. We hadn't even imagined that five years ago. So what you can do with different platforms is really changing. And I find that very exciting. And I think if people are going into medicine now, so many ways in which they can utilize their interest, skill, capabilities in medicine to do so many things, including solving some of the toughest issues we have on the planet. Let me go back and ask about pivot because you've pivoted several times. It's not just from medicine to pharmaceutical industry. There were other things that happened after that. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So someone told me as they were sending me a little dinner off to China (laughs) that I had the highest risk profile of anyone that she had ever met. That might or might not be true. I don't know. But within my industry, I've done a couple of different pivots. So when I left, I did a very traditional route. I went into clinical development and I was a clinical director. And then I moved into medical affairs, which got me exposure to a lot of businesses, not only my own in terms of at that time, Glaxo, but meeting pharmacy directors and meeting academics and KOLs and all of that. And it started me to use a lot of my skill sets in terms of presenting and synthesizing information. And that was really cool. After spending about 10 years in a couple of different companies in that area, I moved into marketing. I like went knocking on doors within Merck and said, hey, I'd like to be a product manager. I mean, I was really interested at that point in time in strategic thinking and strategic decision-making. And clinical was one part of that. And I told someone, I want to own the whole strategy. I don't want to just own one part of the strategy. And so I landed in 2000 in a marketing director role on a big franchise for a primary care product called Cozar for hypertension. And stayed on that franchise for a couple of years, learned a lot, a lot. It was like my MBA, I think. You know, I've had a lot of different jobs I've had pure commercial jobs where literally it's like about boots on the ground. I've had very strategic jobs. I've had operational jobs. Actually, my last job before I came into a rare disease, small biotech rare disease company, was running global operations for Global Pharma, for GSK. And then I landed in a biotech, you know, on the management team, reporting into a CEO. And, you know, that led to a couple of things, including landing on a couple of public boards. More after this message from Doc Working Thrive. Doc Working, the whole physician podcast is brought to you by the Doc Working Thrive subscription membership. It is all the things you doctors have asked us for in one package. It's designed for doctors by doctors. You get group coaching by professional physician coaches around problems and challenges specific to you. You get a physician community where you can connect and build relationships with other physicians. Also, self-paced courses that you take on your own schedule, full of information on things like time management, leadership, boundaries, communication, stress management, and so much more. All of this and more 
at an unbelievably affordable price. We built it for you, doctors. Go to docworking.com to sign up for Doc Working Thrive today. You'll be so glad you did. Let me ask you this, because it seems like there came a point where taking risks was no big deal to you. Was that always the case? I think so. After I hit about 35-ish, right? Like when I made the decision to move from clinical development to marketing, that doesn't happen a lot in the pharmaceutical industry for a physician. That changed everything for me because that was such a huge leap, right? That at that point, it was like, well, I can do that and I can do that and I can do that and I can do that. And sometimes I surprise myself and I get nervous, you know, like I'll do something that's kind of new even today. I mean, there's new stuff cropping up and I'm like, can I do that? And I was like, well, I just have to try. And then it's like, oh, okay. Well, maybe I did that like at a 50% level, but hey, it's better than 0%. So let's just keep going. And you get to learn as you go. And now you're producing movies. That's another huge leap. Have you ever produced a movie before? So I produced a movie that my daughter made, a short called Getaway Car. It was when she was a film student. And that was great fun to kind of watch that process. But actually, it's based on something quite serious. So, you know, I have a site called Life After Abuse. My daughters, both of them went through an assault. And, you know, I just kind of felt like I had to do something, you know, that you reach these moments where you're like, okay, so I've done all these things and bad things can still happen to you. And that was like a moment where I had to figure out how I was going to deal with that trauma and pain and suffering. And so I started this very nascent platform and it's still nascent because I work, you know, it's kind of, it's there, but I really started it because I wanted parents to be able to have a place to go to if their child had ever been assaulted and needed some support and needed some answers. What that led to was this desire to look at how I could put myself out there more in the world. So the second thing is I started talking about this was I started becoming kind of a partner for a group in Uganda, which is called Rape Hurts. It's run by an amazing woman whose name is Helen Tanyinga, who was raped when she was 10, bringing water to her village. And Helen has done some amazing work for the past 10 years, basically teaching women in villages outside of Kampala how to fish. <laughs> I mean, she's done just incredible work in saving kids from trafficking. It's just amazing. And so we were going to make a documentary on that. And then COVID hit. So we couldn't go to Uganda to do that. So the filmmaker that I was working with had another project and he called me up and he's like, look, Lisa, he's a producer. And he was like, I got this project called Where's Rose and Where's Rose. It's kind of a horror movie, which rape is, but it's a horror movie and it's about sexual assault. And would you be willing to be an executive producer on that? And I was like, well, Absolutely, because we can't put the money into the documentary right now. Absolutely. And that's how it got started. And this was a friend from my daughter's film school. So, you know, it's amazing, again, how life weaves itself. I met him about three years ago once as he and my daughter were driving back to school. But, you know, I just wanted to figure out ways to support women and children who are in these vulnerable situations. And that's a way to do it. Well, that's powerful. 
So Lisa, do you consider yourself an activist at this point in your life? I think so. And it's one of the reasons why I'm always evaluating my life and where I'm spending my time. Because, you know, you wake up and you kind of go like the world's on fire. I mean, I live in Venice and in Venice, you know, we have like over 50,000 people living on the streets, Venice, California. And, you know, there are 50,000 people living on the streets in Los Angeles. And I see that every day. I see mentally ill people every day. I see people rummaging through my trash every day looking for food. I see people who are suffering from addiction. And, you know, one has to decide like how they're going to engage in that. And I think that I am an activist, but I'm not quite the activist that I want to be yet. There's a lot more to do. And I feel like the activism that I've experienced over the past has been, let me give some money to somebody. And that's fine. You know, I don't disregard that or think myself not worthy because of that. I mean, sometimes that's what you can do. But there is a very strong desire bubbling up in me now to do more than that. And I'm trying to figure out how the problems that we have are so great and feel so hopeless at a time when we have so much resource to be able to figure out how to solve them. So one of the other things that I'll just mention is that I'm on a couple public boards, so in biotech, but I'm on a nonprofit board called Young People in Recovery. And so I've aligned everything that I do to my own personal world. So when one of my daughters was assaulted, she was having you know, terrible PTSD. And part of the treatment of that was benzodiazepines. And she came to me one day and she's like, mom, like after it's like a lot of different types of treatment, she said, you know, I feel like I have a benzodiazepine addiction and I think I need help. And, you know, luckily we had all these resources that we could throw at it and she got the help that she needs. And she's been two years off of benzodiazepines. And so that's phenomenal. There are a lot of young people who are suffering and they don't have the recovery support systems. They can maybe get treatment. You know, there's a huge disparity around that in terms of economics and racial inequality. But if you look at recovery programs, we kind of just like say, great, we've treated you, bye. And yet there are people who need support in getting back on track for education or getting back on track for home or getting back on track for their job. And this is wasted talent if we don't do something about it. So I joined this board, Young People in Recovery, which is a wonderful national organization where young people run groups and they peer counsel and they peer teach. And there's a prison program that they run to help people transition back into the world. And I am basically an activist board member, right? So, <laughs> so I'm, doing, I'm doing things like that. But then when I see outside my door, there are people that don't have access to any of that. It just spurs my first anger and then attention to try to figure out what to do. And if you think about the full circle, though, Gabriella, medicine is woven throughout all of this. Because if I'm on my podcast or on my little blog and I'm talking about transcranial magnetic stimulation, I can actually talk about that for the treatment of PTSD. I can have a conversation with the trauma of sexual assault, right? I can have a conversation about what does substance use disorder mean and how are we going to support people with addiction and understand it in a way that maybe other people can't. So yeah, I guess I am an activist, but I want to do more. I love that you bring up the fact that you're drawing not only from your professional background, but you're kind of weaving it. I like that word too, weaving into your personal experience. 
in order to help people. As you said, I went into medicine because this might be a way to help people. And that's exactly what you're doing. But it's now playing out in probably ways that maybe, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, you'd never would have predicted. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what makes life so interesting. You know, I was listening to something today, this pastor that I listened to, he said, we go from glory to glory, but we don't know what the transportation is going to look like. And I can tell you, there've been some real moments when, you know, I didn't know what that transportation was. I was like, wow, where am I headed? <laughs> you know, especially in depths of pain, you just kind of go, where am I headed? Or when you look out in the street, you see people suffering, where, where are we headed? So yeah, it did not look like this. And I would have never thought when I was getting that diploma from Howard in 1989, that this would be my life. I wouldn't have thought that. So one last thing, Lisa, because what I just heard you say, I think is something very powerful that we talk about pivot, moving from career to career, job to job, next adventure to next adventure. So it starts with job, employment, career, and then it moves into adventure and curiosity. So I'm wondering, what is the ultimate pivot here? Because it seems like the ultimate pivot is taking something that you're frustrated and angry about and then flipping that 180 degrees and making it a new purpose, a new curiosity, a new adventure, a new discovery. Would that be the ultimate pivot for you based on experience and what you see outside your door even? It's like, okay, I need to do something about it. Oh, I think so. Because my kids are always asking me, okay, so what are you going to do? And, you know, I've thought about everything from going to Doctors Without Borders and doing something there to, you know, just deepening my engagement with the causes that I'm already focused on and figuring out ways. I don't feel like I need to start new foundations. There's a ton of them. You know, which one do I want to join? (laughs) You know, great people have already done that. So, yes, I think the ultimate pivot is really using the freedom that I have in my life to do something very up close and personal to help individuals. So that's the other pivot that I'm moving towards, Gabriella. I believe that everything is personal. Like, you know, we have a situation in our church where they're deciding that they're just going to help 24th graders learn how to read this summer or third graders so that they can be prepared for fourth grade. That's like hands-on. And I want to get hands-on. So that's my ultimate pivot to live that. And The final thing I will say, though, is distraction is big in our society. And I get distracted all the time. Trust me, I can watch Netflix all day long, too. (laughs) But one of the things that I did do about five years ago is I really started looking at a simplicity movement. So, no, I actually don't live in this beautiful background. I started really thinking about how much money do I actually need to live and how can I trade money for time? And that's the pivot also that I'm going through right now to say, okay, right? Like I'm good. My kids are good. They'll figure out their lives are doing great. And how can I use my time? Because it is the only thing that I cannot get back. I cannot make time. So finding the best way to spend that is actually an active adventure for me right now. So what's your immediate next step? What do you have in mind or what is your immediate inspiration right now? Yeah, I think my immediate inspiration is to do better in the things I've committed to, you know, getting more involved in young people in recovery so that I'm not just a board member who shows up at the board meetings and does a few little things, 
in the areas like the films or the advocacy, Ray Pertz Foundation or other groups like that, just really getting more involved and taking the time to do that. Sounds simple, but I think I've only scratched the surface of the commitments that I've already made. And that's excellent. I mean, there's still, I have no doubt, so much to learn and so much to grow in and everything that you have right now or that you're, you're involved in right now that I'm sure the possibilities are limitless. So Lisa, I am just so proud of you and so amazed by you. And just, you're such a wonderful example of just going with where your heart takes you. And so I appreciate you sharing your insights with us today. Gabriella, it's such a pleasure. I've known you for a really long time. You are a warrior with a capital W. So it's actually quite humbling to be here with you today. And thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you. Did you know that August is National Civic Health Month? Civic Health Month is a month dedicated to highlighting the important connection between civic participation and health and features hundreds of hospitals and clinics and thousands of individual healthcare providers, all committed to helping their patients and providers vote like their health depends on it. Civic Health Month makes it easy for you to get involved by providing personalized tools and resources like badge backers and posters to help your patients register to vote. And the best part, it's completely free. Over 26,000 healthcare providers just like you are already taking action toward creating a health democracy. So why not join them? Visit www.civichealthmonth.org to learn more and get involved. Hello, and thank you for listening. This is Amanda Taran. I'm the producer of the Doc Working Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please like and subscribe. We would also love it if you checked out our website, which is docworking.com. And you can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. On Instagram, we are docworking1, and that is with the number 1. When you check us out on social, please let us know what you would like to hear on the podcast. Your feedback really means a lot to us. And if you're a physician with a story you'd like to tell, please reach out to me at amanda at docworking.com to apply to be on the podcast. Thank you again, and we look forward to talking with you on the next episode of Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast.